First Samuel chapter 17, we've been looking at the life of young David, and if there was anybody who really exemplified that hymn and lived for God's glory, wanted his name to be lifted up, lived out the, the five solas, it would be uh, David. And we're going to read verses 12 through 22. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel uh, were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that uh, as I, as a clay instrument, uh, give it, uh, Father, that the Spirit would take it and uh, keep uh, me from bringing any error and enable uh, this uh, word to triumph in our lives. May we be built up as your most holy people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, how many people here have heard about Max Weber's thesis, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism? Okay, a few of you. How many here have heard the phrase, The Protestant Work Ethic? Okay, a lot more of you have heard of that. He was the one that coined that phrase, and back in 1904 when he uh, wrote that thesis and said, really, it was only the, the Protestant worldview that enabled capitalism to really take off and triumph. That thesis has been under constant attack. Uh, and I've read quite a few of those attacks. Obviously, the Roman Catholics uh, didn't like the thesis, and the uh, Muslims didn't like it too well. Uh, but despite a lot of attacks, the central thesis has never been able to be successfully overturned. In fact, in 2000, I think it was October of 2000, the American Journal of Economics and Sociology uh, published the results of a massive study that was done by uh, Horst Feldman, and uh, uh, he was from the University of Bath. It was a study that was based on 80 different countries, and it basically upholds Max Weber's uh, thesis of the, this um, uh, Protestant work ethic. And interestingly, he points out that even though predestination and some of the other doctrines that resulted in this massive transformational uh, movement um, have disappeared from these countries, some of the effects of those doctrines continue to remain. And so they did a study and they showed how uh, the Protestant countries have uh, by far uh, the highest employment rate, and he looks at several economic success indicators and indicates uh, that, that those are true in the Protestant nations despite the fact that these governments are being punitive in their intrusion into the marketplace in an anti-Reformation way. And he's saying these things are disappearing, but they're still there. They're still the fruits. Now, these secular guys who are analyzing this, they don't necessarily, in fact, for sure, they don't like the root that produced this good fruit. But some of these guys do admire the fruit, and it's just a, a sociological uh, analysis. Well, today is Reformation Day, and you know that I've taught for quite a number of years that the Reformed doctrines absolutely transformed Europe. 
Contrary to what some people naively think, the doctrine of predestination did not make uh, people passive. Uh, They actually, a number of these uh, authors would agree with this author when he said the doctrine of predestination laid the foundation for the work ethic, unquote. I was not a Calvinist who wrote that. That was a secular study. And many people think, what? Uh, How in the world could that be? Surely any predestinarian is going to be passive, a robot, you know. He's just not going to do anything. He's going to wait for God to do it. But secular study after secular study has demonstrated that Calvinism produced the exact opposite. It produced enormous industry and enormous numbers of um, hospitals and businesses and uh, zeal in missions and zeal in warfare and and, uh, far more uh, energetic industry in the workplace than any Roman Catholic uh, country ever produced. And the question is, why? Now, there are a number of reasons why that doctrine would do that, but one of those I've mentioned at the beginning of the service, if you are totally secure in your destiny, where you're going to be in eternity, it unleashes man's energies to be serving God right here on earth rather than spending your whole lifetime trying to work and see, man, I've got to do something to try to earn my salvation. It completely unleashed their energies in a creative direction. Another example, the doctrine that God alone was sovereign limited what the state could interfere with in the marketplace, and it added its own impetus to capitalism. Just one more example, doctrine of total depravity made citizens very distrustful of any coercion in the marketplace. And there's a lot of other doctrines that had an impact on on what we're going to be talking about today and enabled a number of these societies, all of the Calvinistic societies, to really prosper and grow. Some of you have read uh, Gene Veith's uh, writings. He said, Medieval Catholicism taught that spiritual perfection is to be found in celibacy, poverty, and the monastic withdrawal from the world where higher spiritual life is found, or supposedly is found. But the Reformers emphasized the spiritual dimension of family life, productive labor, and cultural engagement, unquote. And we're going to be looking at uh, some of those things this morning. Now, even though um, Max Weber probably wrote the most extensively on that subject initially, uh, John Wesley, who believed in the Protestant work ethic, tried to summarize, and many people have said he's really captured it, he tried to summarize it down into three words, And uh, here's what John Wesley said. He said, work as hard as you can, save as much as you can, and give as much as you can. Work, save, and give. And we're going to be looking at those three, uh, three words this morning. Now, this is going to be every point coming out of the text, but uh, because some of these things are just hinted at here, it's going to be kind of a mix between a topical and a textual uh, sermon, but uh, I trust it will be of great benefit to you. First of all, work. There's a lot of dimensions of the biblical worldview of work that we're not going to get into this morning because I'm just going to talk about what flows out of this text. But verse 12 begins by pointing us to a family business. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years, in the days of Saul. And then I've given some other scriptures there. As you go through the passage, you'll see that the father is running the business. He gives commands. Verse 20 says that David went as Jesse had commanded him. And in most of the businesses of that day, what you would find is that the dad or a brother or an uncle were running uh, the, the business. Now, Jesse apparently hands the reins of this business over to one of uh, David's uh, older brothers sometime between this chapter and chapter 20 because the father is still alive in chapter 20. In fact, he's still alive in chapter 22. But in chapter 20, uh, 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 Jesse's retired from his business and one of David's brothers is running the business. And in verse um, 29 of that chapter, uh, David says, my brother has commanded me to be there. So at that point, David's married. He's got his own family. And the question comes, you know, how can a dad be commanding a person who's married? How can a brother be commanding a person who's married? What's going on here? How do they have authority uh, over another family? And the answer is simple. 
He has business authority, but not the authority of a head of a family. So this is in no way a violation of the commandment in Genesis 2, verse 24, that a man must leave his father and his mother and uh, cleave to his wife. A husband leaves a father's authority to govern the internal affairs of his nuclear family. Okay, that's the immediate family when he gets married. But if you're part of the extended family business, there has to be somebody to be in charge of that business. Now, he's not in charge of your nuclear family, but he still is in charge of the business. So if you understand those things, uh, you understand there's three separate governments, family, church, and state. It makes uh, quite a lot of sense. Now, in America, we have drifted so far from Reformation teachings. There's been so much secularizing of our thinking that it doesn't seem very comfortable to even be thinking about being in the kind of business that David is in here. It seems foreign to us, but a family business, I think, is a brilliant alternative to corporations. I was actually going to get into a big discussion of how corporations have actually wasted the family, ruined the family. I've decided, well, no, I don't have time to do that. You could talk to me about that uh, another time. But some people think of corporations as being the essence of the free market system. Uh, it is my contention that corporations, especially multinational corporations, the big corporations, out there have been the thorn in the side of free market capitalism. Many times they have been the ones who have been the biggest enemy to the family and the biggest enemy to Christianity. They certainly have been the ones who have promoted big government the most. And I'm not willing to say that all corporations are sin like Dabney said, so don't get into a big controversy with me on this, but um, uh, they often have become the means of keeping wealth outside the family and perpetuating wealth outside the family for generations. Just an amazing thing. So one of the things I just encourage you to do, start studying a little bit about what the Reformation uh, as reformers said about corporations, and they had corporations back then, and how corporations, and especially the Roman Catholic Church and the monasteries, had robbed, had eviscerated the strength of the family. And I think you'll see a little bit of what I am talking about. The family was the absolute linchpin of the Reformed theory of capitalism. And there are at least some homeschoolers who are wanting to go back to this older concept of you know, extended family of business. But some people have gone too far on this point, and, uh, you know, they're trying to, you know, force all of their kids to be a part of their family business, irrespective of the, of the you know, the son's or the daughter's interest or their, their giftings in that. And so point A needs to be balanced with point B. Since the nuclear family is the foundation of society, not the extended family, the nuclear family is the foundation of society, continuing in an extended family business is totally optional. Prior to the Reformation, that was not always true. In fact, there were countries where it was illegal for a person to leave the trade or the profession that their father had. Now, it was just very, very strange. And the Reformation, because they were going back to the Scriptures, they opened things up to, you know, job mobility and economic uh, mobility. And so I think point B hints at what is needed as a, as a corrective to hyper-patriarchalism. Hyper-patriarchalism hyper does not always distinguish well enough between the nuclear family and its jurisdiction and the extended family and uh, the way in which uh, a business you know, can be run within a, a nuclear or within an extended family. Take a look at verse 15. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his brother's sheep at Bethlehem. Now, in the previous chapter, David had already started apprenticing under Saul in a totally different job, and that was not considered a betrayal. Throughout Scripture, we see that people exercise this option. That's not revolutionary to us. You think, okay, let's get on with it, Phil. <laughs> we know about that. That was absolutely revolutionary at the time of the Reformation. And it was because they were getting back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? We're not going to restrict what people can do except by biblical law. That was their passion. It was the perfect law of liberty. So you go into the book of Leviticus and you see all kinds of rules in there uh, that uh, dealt with uh, land laws, for example, that almost forced 
families to expand beyond the land. If they wanted to maintain it in an extended family business, they had to add to it in order to be able to prosper. And Gary North and his commentaries on Leviticus has shown how God was building right into the system of the Bible specialization, division of labor, and upward or outward mobility. It was just built right in. But it erupted forth when the Reformation allowed for it. Now, one of the Reformation doctrines that precipitated this, according to all of the scholars that I've read, was their doctrine of calling, or sometimes it's called vocation. Vocation. If Jesus served faithfully as a carpenter for 30 years, you can hardly relegate carpentry to a lower status than going into a monastery, like some people had been uh, doing. Uh, No, Jesus had carpentry as a calling for 30 years, and we can have that as a calling or as a vocation. Likewise, when Romans 13 uses the word minister to describe a civil magistrate, same word that's used of us elders, ministers, then we cannot call the work of a civil magistrate secular work. All of life was to be under the lordship of Christ. All of it was supposed to be spiritual. In other words, it was supposed to be empowered by the Spirit, governed by His Word. And so one of the things that the Reformation taught was that involvement in civic affairs is a duty and a calling. You look at verse 13, you see the brothers serving in the military, or you see David's uh, being an armor-bearer in chapter 16, verse 21. That's service, Okay. To the Lord. Verse 15 also mentions he was a shepherd. Now he was working his way out of being a shepherd into being uh, a king, actually for a while before that. Into, uh, he wasn't shepherding, he was uh, leading a, a paramilitary organization, wasn't he? And then, of course, David becomes a delivery boy in verses 16 through 17. Now, I don't need to belabor those points. I think they're pretty obvious, but the division of labor and specialization that the Bible speaks of throughout the Old Testament absolutely revolutionized the societies where the Reformation took root. Um, And the results of this teaching turned stagnation into prosperity. So don't ever think that Reformation doctrine is impractical. It has enormous practical ramifications, and it's high time that the evangelical church got back to the Reformation. I think the Reformation doctrines would solve a lot of what's coming out of Washington, D.C., I think going back to the Reformation would solve a lot of the socialism that's rampant in the evangelical church. Now, I've inserted point C to reiterate that the family was more of a priority than the church or the state. Neither church nor state could gobble up that which God had placed within the family's jurisdiction. I want you to notice in verses 13 through 14, uh, the writer makes it unmistakably clear with his emphasis and re-emphasis that not all eight sons were serving in the military. And I've got at least five or six commentaries that are puzzled over that. They say, well, we don't have any idea why they're not serving there. But the reformers were not puzzled by that. Uh, Take a look at this. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were uh, Eliab, if you want the Hebrew pronunciation, or Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah, David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. Now David, we already know, was uh, 18 years old in this chapter, and so he was too young to go into the military. He had to be at least 20 years of age. But that means that there were four brothers between David and Shammah, and at least three of those brothers were old enough to be serving in the military. Why weren't they? Well, there was a little rule that uh, Israel had that only three sons could serve in any given battle at a time because they didn't want the whole family wiped out. And you can see an example in Saul's life. Um, In um, uh, 2 Samuel 31, verse 6, you find only three of Saul's sons were fighting in that final battle. All three of them were killed. There There were other sons but they, they, were not, uh, they were not fighting. Now, what does this mean to me? It means that family perpetuity trumps state perpetuity. Family perpetuity 
trumps state perpetuity. And as Charlie Rangel proposes to Congress that the president have a civilian force that's as big as our U.S. military, actually it'll probably be bigger because he's wanting all males and females from 18 to, 22, uh, to 42, 18 to 42, to have two years mandatory service either in the military or if they don't want to do that in the civilian uh, service, what we can say is no. It's not mandatory in the Bible to serve the state. It's a good thing. We're going to be looking at how it's a good thing to serve in the state, but it is a voluntary thing that people enter into. And I think Deuteronomy 20 is clear on that. We won't go into it. Now, we saw last, in the last chapter that even Saul had to ask permission for Jesse, from Jesse for David to work with him. He had to get permission. And because of the age of his father, David still has freedom in verse 15 to tend Jesse's uh, sheep when it's needed. Now, to me, this is just a marvelous, marvelous protection of family interests. In medieval times, these interests were being eroded. There was this debate, huge debate, between who's the most powerful, the church or the state. And it went back and forth, especially from the time of the 1200s and on. And there were times where the church was ruling over the state, and there were times where the state was ruling over the church. And in the process of this debate, they just ignored the place of the family. They just took it for granted. And the family's uh, God-given roles were being destroyed. When the Reformation came around, the Protestants restored the family to its dignity, authority, and jurisdiction. And they recognized in the Bible there were some things that not even a Saul, not even an Ahab, were allowed to do to the family. There were restrictions. So the Reformation restored family, church, and state as three sideways governments, not one over the other, three sideways governments. And uh, it was a very, uh, a very important distinction. The other thing that they recognized, okay, the family is the most vulnerable. It is the weakest of those three governments. And they saw that the Bible protected the family in a unique way. It made the nuclear family the most fundamental unit of both church and state. And a lot of ramifications of that. One of them is only one vote per family. Okay, the families had a vote in both the state and in the church. Male head of household, (coughs) excuse me, voting. And the economic implications of this are enormous. Democratic individualism in America is destroying some of the wonderful, wonderful fruit of the Reformation. And again, I'm not going to have time to dive into the implications of each of these, but I do want to plant seeds in your mind of what things flowed from the Reformation this morning that uh, just deal with your every day-to-day practical living. The fourth facet of the work ethic that is important to mention is the value of industriousness. In verse 20, it says, So David rose early in the morning. This shows, first of all, that David was not slothful. Okay? He didn't enjoy lying around and uh, lazing, uh, lazing out. And sloth was treated as being a great enemy of the Reformation leaders. One of the reasons that the Calvinistic countries uh, always prospered is because they were incredibly industrious. That was one of the foundations in America. You see it in all of the early writings, even the secular writings in America. Benjamin Franklin, he's got all kinds of proverbs you know, that deal with this need for industrious, uh, industriousness. Early to rise, er, no, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. The early bird gets the worm. I mean, he had just, there were just tons of these things that were trying to teach kids, you're never going to get anywhere unless you are uh, industrious. And Max Weber uh, pointed out that this constant emphasis on the scriptural principle that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, helped to produce wildfire growth of capitalism in Calvinistic countries. But this also shows David's value of time. He rose way before it was dawn, sort of like the Proverbs 31 woman who rises before it is dawn. Scripture talks a lot about time. Ephesians commands us to redeem the time. Leviticus has all kinds of rules dealing with time. You look through the Scripture, you'll see there's a lot that it has to say about planning and about time management. Time was seen as a limited resource in the Bible, and the biblical view of time hugely influenced the Reformers. They didn't just speak of you working for yourself or of other people working for you. They spoke of money working for you. 
and time working for you. They understood the principle of compounded growth over time. And wastefulness for them, wastefulness of time, was just unthinkable. Uh, This was something that was as bad as the sloth uh, that was mentioned earlier. And their whole point was, your time does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Everything you have belongs to God, and you are required to be a steward of your time. Now, there's a lot of Christians who are not wasteful of their money. They're very careful stewards of their money, but they blow all kinds of time, incredibly wasteful with their time. And what the Reformers would have said is, you may think you're not wasting time, I mean, money, but when you waste time, you are wasting money. In fact, uh, I should have put a couple of quotes in uh, from there. If you have never engaged in time management, you have missed out on the Protestant work ethic. It is an absolutely essential ingredient. The seeing of time as a limited resource entrusted by God to his people actually produced a radical rethinking of economics. Now, I'm just barely touching on these concepts, okay? Uh, uh, If you want to develop a Protestant work ethic in your kids, you're going to have to study these on your own and start applying them uh, to to, to your children. And you're going to find your children don't want to do it. It's not natural to our flesh. It takes God's grace to be able to do this. That's why it's the previous chapter you see the filling and the empowering and the anointing of David by the Holy Spirit that produces these things in his life. It flows from grace. All of the Reformation doctrines, they fit together. Okay, verses 20, 22 illustrate um, uh, the sixth value that Max Weber spoke about. And he had different titles for this, faithfulness, virtue, Uh, He had different ways of expressing it, but the second phrase in verse 20 says that David left the sheep with a keeper. Okay, so uh, he's commanded, I want you to go off and do that job. He doesn't just go off, okay, whatever, and then leave his sheep alone. No, he still feels a stewardship responsibility for what's left. So he makes sure that there is a shepherd who's trained and knows what to do that he can leave them with before he goes off and does this new responsibility that's been set up for him to do. That's just called stewardship, good stewardship. The next phrase indicates that David was faithful to follow orders, exactly as given. Went as Jesse had commanded him. Then verse 22 speaks of his responsibility with goods. You know, he gets to the battle. Things are exciting. He doesn't just leave things on the ground and go off and look at what's, uh, what's going to be happening. It says, David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Now, we are losing this kind of faithfulness and virtue that Max Weber and Tocqueville and, and others uh, uh, said was foundational to America's prospering. Nowadays, people will contract to do a job, and then later, they'll back out. They'll make an appointment with you, and they'll show up late, or they won't show up at all. Uh, People often do the minimum minimum required on a job. They don't go the extra mile. But if you want the blessing of the Lord to rest on all of your labors, you've got to put on this principle of going the extra mile. In fact, I've brought a, a 30 copies of this booklet with me, It's by Napoleon Hill. It's called The Habit of Going the Extra Mile. Uh, He he gives illustration after illustration from businesses that are really, really interesting and showing how this principle works. But let me just quote from the beginning here. He says, An important principle of success in all walks of life and in all occupations is a willingness to go the extra mile which means the rendering of more and better service than that for which one is paid and giving it in a positive mental attitude. Search wherever you will for a single sound argument against this principle and you will not find it. Nor will you find a single instance of enduring success which was not attained in part by its application. So if you're wanting your kids to put on the Protestant work ethic, I would encourage you to... Uh, Just give them this booklet and start discussing with it and say, let's give some homework. Let's see how we can apply this principle in our lives. I've got uh, several copies. Now, the last feature of their view of work was that it must engage all of culture rather than withdrawing from culture. So work was not seen as a retreat from culture. It was seen as a part of the process of engaging all of culture for King Jesus. Now, if you look at the back of your outlines, 
uh, you will see Daryl Miller's three basic views of work. There's the theist's view of work, which sees it as stewardship, taking all of this world, planet Earth, for King Jesus. The next picture is the secularist's view of work, where it's just seen as an economic exchange that'll benefit me. It's just purely horizontal. And then the, the um, animist's view of work is that it's a necessary burden. You know, if you can get out of work, we sure will, but it's a necessary uh, burden. And uh, what I want to say is that it is a little bit simplistic. That's the way it should be. But not all Christians have the theist's view of work. And so what I want to do is I want to... I want to go through and show some counterfeits of what the biblical view of work uh, is. But first of all, let me just uh, look at the text and show some of the hints here of cultural engagement. Uh, The brothers of David engaged culture in verse 13 when they're seeking to overthrow the threat of Philistinism. They weren't passive. They had the legal right to be passive, but they're not passive. They're really engaging culture. In verse 15... David does his best to minister in two spheres of life. In verses 17 through 20, Jesse's not just helping out his son, he's helping out the army. He's engaging in culture. And even though this is just hinted at here, the Reformers saw this principle as an absolutely necessary consequence of the idea that work is stewardship. If you believe that work is stewardship, this logically flows from that. And this, too, was a revolutionary restoration to old ideas. Really, the early church always held to this. Well, for the most part, uh, people like Athanasius and Augustine and those leaders, they held to this principle. Now, let me quickly outline main compromised approaches to culture that Christians have taken, and then we'll contrast it with the biblical one. By the way, Max Weber, he didn't say it's the biblical one. He said it's the Calvinistic one, but the biblical approach, uh, he says that's, that's what revolutionized, the, uh, you know, uh, the, w- these Western countries in terms of capitalism. Now, many early church fathers were identical to the Reformed view on this, or the biblical view, but there were some who uh, uh, escaped from culture altogether. They looked at the world out there and they were so distressed over the sin, the wickedness, the evil, that they couldn't stand being out there in the world. So they went off to the desert, they hid in a cave, and they spent their time uh, praying and writing and reading the Bible and things like that. Now, there were others who weren't all by themselves, but it was the same principle that drove them. They went off into monasteries. It's basically the principle of escape. Their motivation was, I need to protect myself from the world. But because they took that, they were not being salt or light. And Jesus says, you're useless. You know, fit to be thrown out and trampled underfoot of men. They are not taking the attitude, this is my father's world. And Satan ought not to be taken over this world, right? Uh, They're leaving it to Satan and it's a compromise of the Great Commission. Now, there was a second view that was developed by an incredibly brilliant, brilliant man in the mid-1200s. His name was Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas loved the Greek philosophers, especially Aristotle. And because he really admired them, he adopted Aristotle's views on science and cosmology and... and, um, economics, uh, just about all of the things that he had laid out, he admired it, he adopted it. Now, he had a problem. He, he said, okay, this was developed by a secular person, so what he did is he synthesized. He didn't want to throw out the Bible, and he didn't want to throw out Aristotle, so he tries to mix the two together, and this syncretism produced a brand new religion that we speak of as Roman Catholicism, and it was brand new. Uh, it was paganism mixed together uh, with uh, Christianity. Now, it's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, that was ridiculous. They should not have done that. Point the finger back there. Many people do not realize it, but evangelicals, most evangelicals are doing the same today. Many Reformed people are doing exactly the same thing today. They admire the wisdom of the world, and they don't want to let go of that wisdom, and so they try to synthesize it with the Scripture. Let me give you some examples. There are people who love the doctrine of evolution and all of the uh, so-called sciences that support that. They don't want to let that go. They don't want to let the Bible go. So they make a synthesis, and they call it 
uh, the day-age theory. Okay, And these same people will take pagan psychology, pagan sociology, pagan anthropology, pagan economics, pagan politics, they will mix it together with the Bible and they will come up with a synthesis that is called the neo-evangelicalism. But it is miles and miles away from the true evangelicalism that reigned from the time of the Reformation all the way up to the early 1800s. It is a almost an identical synthesis. Now Saul was guilty of this to some degree. He thought he was being the solution. He really was part of the problem. Okay, the third approach to culture that you find in Christianity is the Lutheran two-kingdom theory. Okay, this approach applies the Bible to the church kingdom. They speak of it as a separate kingdom, but they don't apply the Bible to the secular culture. And this is where this idea of a a sacred-secular dichotomy uh, uh, has come from. Now, practically, what it meant is that huge territories of life were robbed from Christ's kingdom and robbed from the authority of biblical blueprints. And what happens when you have a vacuum? Christians pull out of society. Automatically, vacuums are filled with hostile uh, theologies or philosophies. So it's no surprise at all to me that Nazism took over Germany and took over the Lutheran churches. And there were other ideologies before Nazism that had taken over those same churches. Not surprising at all. By the way, I listened to a, a wonderful critique of this by McDermott, um, Joel McDermott. Uh, at the American Vision Conference. I think we may have the the CDs in in the library, but definitely worth uh, listening to. Okay, moving quickly on, or not so quickly, uh, there's a fourth approach to culture that uh, I like to term the ghetto counterculture. Now, this approach wants to conserve values that are hundreds of years old, but really they're more traditional than they are scriptural. Now, the Amish are a classic example of this, but lest you think, okay, this is an irrelevant discussion, there's a lot of Christians who have a milder form of this Amish view. They just think they're being faithful to Scripture if they're old-fashioned, okay, and if they're different uh, from what the current culture is. It's really a traditionalism. It's not a scripturalism, and these guys have had no influence on the world. They think they're uninfluenced by the world. Uh, That's another question, but uh, they might drive their buggies on the world's streets, but they have no impact. Okay, the fifth approach is similar. It's to ignore culture, and this is what the fundamentalists have done. Good people, uh, but they've thought over the last 100 years, Jesus is coming back any minute. There's no point in getting involved in all of those things. Let's just focus all of our time saving as many souls as we can. Why polish brass on a sinking ship? And this view, I think, is probably the main reason why America has been falling to tatters is because Christians have bailed out. They ignore culture. They don't try to influence it at all. They've moved out of the movie industry, for example, and movie industry just started becoming incredibly corrupt after they moved out. Uh, we've had the numbers. We've had the numbers of Christians to keep politics, business, blue laws, economics, all of the other things righteous, but we have not used our influence partly because of this view. The sixth approach is to adopt the culture wholesale. And this is what the liberals have done. And so if the culture is uh, patriotic, like 75 years ago, and wants to be flag-raising, you know, whatever the government says we're going to do it, then that's what they adopt. If the culture becomes pro-abortion or pro-homosexual, they're going to be very progressive and they're going to be trying to champion these so-called rights of abortion and homosexuality. And what they don't realize is they are just 100% mirroring paganism within the church of Jesus Christ. It's just become a pagan church. This was a temptation for Israel over and over again in the Old Testament where they admired some of the culture of Baalism, for example, but they didn't want to leave God, so they called it Jehovah, but they brought Baal worship in under the name of Jehovah, or maybe Ashtoreth or whatever the other fad might be. This has always been a temptation of the church. And the prophets came along. They said, hey, we're worshiping Christ. We're worshiping Jehovah. And they said, no, you are pagans. You are not worshiping Jehovah. So it's been a temptation of the church all down through the centuries. 
And those six compromising approaches to culture have kept society from seeing the blessings, the societal blessings that Christian nation after Christian nation did indeed enjoy in the first 1,000 years of America's history. We've forgotten what it means to even be a Christian nation. We are a post-Christian nation. Uh, We've even doubted that the Great Commission's command to disciple the nations is possible. Never mind that Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 42 and Psalm 72 and so many passages promise all nations will serve Christ. All kings will bow down before him. And talking about this in history, not after history, they just think, hey, it's not feasible. How in the world is that possible? So they take a less radical route and they lose the Lord's power and blessings. Now, the approach of Calvin was to return to the majority view of the church in the first 10 centuries to engage with culture with a biblical goal of changing culture. They were not satisfied with a peaceful coexistence with the Philistines. They wanted everything under the lordship of Christ. Athanasius, for example, wanted all idols abolished, God's laws exalted, Christ reigning over life. Prior to the time of Constantine, when they were a persecuted church, Christians had invaded virtually every sphere of life. And they were having an incredible influence. They were needed. They were indispensable. They couldn't get rid of them. They didn't like them. But they were taking over everything. And I think that Constantine just saw the writing on the wall. Now, there's debate. Was he genuinely converted? Or did he just say, well, if you can't beat them, join them? Uh, and, And there's debate back and forth. But the point is, the early church definitely held the Reformed view of transformation of society. And um, there is a great book by George Grant that I highly recommend called Third Time Around. If you want to see in in the first thousand years the phenomenal ways in which uh, Christians, despite being persecuted, and some of them were died for doing this, they would start orphanages and get um, you know, abortion outlawed and undoing uh, the gladiatorial games and all of these types of things. Story after story, it's a fun, fun read. Third Time Around by George Grant. Now let me sum up this first section and try to tie some of these loose ends together. The Reformers did not see work as a result of the curse. They saw it as a pre-fall blessing. Now, obviously, we live post-fall, and so we have a hard time living out our work uh, philosophy as we need. And so they say, we need God's grace, but God's grace was designed to transform these areas of life and restore us to the dominion mandate. They saw work as a service to God. Now, immediately prior to Calvin, a lot of Christians considered, you know, work out there as secular And John Calvin said, get real. Well, he didn't really say get real. Uh, He said, you know, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, what we are saying is we're asking God to be working through farmers and distributors and millers and bakers and shopkeepers. In other words, we're asking God to be working through those industries. They are indeed spiritual industries. We should not consider any job or profession, unless it's an unlawful one, uh, to be outside of the calling of God. They didn't see Christ's carpentry as any less service to to God than his preaching was. And that was revolutionary. It stemmed the hemorrhaging of people into these monasteries and into celibacy and into other unproductive uh, aspects of life. Dr. Roger B. Hill said that the Reformation, quote, viewed work as a calling and avoided placing greater spiritual dignity on one job than another, approved of working diligently to achieve maximum profits required reinvestment of profits back into one's business, allowed a person to change from the craft or profession of his father, and associated success in one's work with the likelihood of being one of God's elect, unquote. He's not a believer, but he was saying, it's just obvious when you read their writings that if God's Spirit is indwelling you, we really ought to be following the Protestant work ethic. The historian Greg Singer said, the influence of Calvin on economic theory and practice has been hardly less extensive than that which he exercised on the political order, unquote. And so it is an absolute misunderstanding of the Protestant Reformation to limit the teaching to our salvation. It's a total misunderstanding to think that the doctrines of grace make us passive. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Paul says, 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. That's the Protestant work ethic. See, God's grace gives us every reason to offer up everything that we do to his glory. And it gives us every reason to be passionate in every line of work. God's grace makes us productive citizens, transforms societies. And so the Reformers knew nothing of the powerless grace of the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. They knew nothing of the powerless grace that is being preached in most evangelical pulpits. It was a transformational grace. Colossians 1.28, Paul said, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Uh, John Piper preached on that particular verse, and he said, The power of God's grace in the heart of the humble believer who depends utterly on God produces incredible industry. And he went on to say, that is the Protestant work ethic. Now, the second major pillar of the Protestant work ethic was thrift or savings for the future. Now, you've got a picture in your outlines of a little girl breaking into her piggy bank prematurely. (laughs) And it's uh, one of the features of immature individuals and immature societies that they live in debt rather than savings. Savings cannot exist when people are present-oriented. Savings cannot exist if you have not developed this discipline of deferred gratification. Now, in the Bible, they were forced to, as farmers. They were forced to be thrifty, to be saving, to be uh, considering the future and to be having deferred gratification. Unfortunately, since FDR started micromanaging society, uh, he invaded the farmers Uh, with socialism as well, and it's not been quite as true. But even there, it's more true with farmers than it is is with others. Now, there's a lot of things we can say about thrift. I just want to highlight three hints of it in this passage. First hint is seen in verse 12, where the thrift of great-grandpa Boaz, Grandpa Obed, and Father Jesse enabled this whole family to have capital to influence Israel and uh, to be involved in other activities than farming and to give. And this capital was multi-generational because of time we won't get into it. But 2 Corinthians 12, 14 perpetuates this principle to today. It says, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Paul was saying, don't spend your kid's inheritance. Okay? Build multi-generationally. Think of ways you can bless your children economically and your grandchildren. Each of these children was blessed by Jesse with a moderate middle-class inheritance that enabled them not to be hand-to-mouth survivalists. They didn't reinvent the wheel every generation. They stood on their parents' shoulders and sought to go beyond them. Now, I mentioned that this capital gave liberty for men of the family to pursue other activities and to expand their dominion. And I love the prayer of Jabez when he asks God, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory. Now, contrary to the ignorant critiques of many Reformed people, that is not a selfish prayer. Read Gary North's Critique of the Critiquers, and I think you'll get another perspective. God himself honored that prayer. He said it was a good prayer. Basically, he's saying, Lord, give me more responsibilities. I want to have more influence for your glory. That's a good prayer. But you know what? You cannot pray that prayer without savings. Without savings... One emergency after another will make you destitute and force you to spend all of your time on survival. Okay, you won't have time to have expanded borders because (laughs) all of your money's used up. You can't even hire people to free up your time. Now, sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes, providentially, we have no money. Okay, but over generations, our hope should be that more and more time would be freed up from survival concerns into taking broader and broader dominion, to be able to pray, pray the prayer of Jabez. Third thing that thrift enabled reformers to do was to have disposable income that would enable them to hire others. This leveraged their money, their time, to make their dominion more effective. And there's lots of passages that speak about it, but just take a look at verse 20. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper... And took the things. Now, the very fact that they had money to hire a keeper, which is a shepherd, uh, freed David up to expand his dominion. 
So let me just quickly read how this whole paradigm looks. And you may be the, the ones who are starting, okay? We've, we've, uh, we're not where we would like to be, but we're at least having this vision, trying to pass this vision on to our children. The growth is that you start off working for someone else like great-grandma Ruth did. Through thrift and avoiding spending anything that doesn't need to be spent, and in her case, it sure didn't help that she got a good marriage because <laughs> she married into a little bit of money, you can save up enough money to purchase fixed capital. This fixed capital enables you to work for yourself and leverage your labors. Through continued thrift, you have enough money to have people work for you. This leverages your time and assets and enables more money to come in, which enables you to acquire more kinds of capital, including rental, which generates passive income. And over generations, you're able to invest and have your money work for you at the same time that others are working for you, and you're working for you. So you have multiple streams of income, and in time, you're freed up to engage in many more kinds of division of labor as trusted workers take over what originally only you were doing. Thrift is a key to the Protestant work ethic, and it is a key to the kind of financial prosperity that the Bible says is possible. Okay, we're going to quit on that one, uh, and well, actually go into the third point. If this is as far as you go, without going any further, the blessing of the Lord will eventually be removed from you. We save to more effectively give. John Wesley embraced the Protestant work ethic, and he mourned over this loss of this particular point in his generation. He said, I fear that wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. Therefore, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue long. For religion must of necessity produce industry and frugality, and these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and love of the world in all of its branches. So he was stuck. <laughs> he was saying, we have to follow the Protestant work ethic, but as soon as we do, we're going to get rich and we're going to abandon the Lord. Oh, we don't want to do that. Well, he's a little bit more pessimistic than the Reformers were because he was a five-point Arminian, but he does make a good point. He does make a good point, and I think this is how you, you abandon that cycle that you see in Judges where people get rich, they forget about the Lord, and eventually they, they go on. You give, okay? This is the key. You give. In this passage, we three three kinds of giving. Point A is the first kind. There's sacrifices of labor, time, and life in verses 13 and 15. Now, David didn't have to go to court. Okay, Jesse could have refused. But Jesse saw this as an investment, and he gave up a valuable labor resource because he saw David's time as having great value for Christ's kingdom. It's an investment. It's a kind of giving. It was sacrificing the potential of getting more economic gain right now through what David is doing to reap eternal gain. Now, some people, they take big salary cuts in order to go into politics, you know, in the, in the state or in the city council or in other things like that. They take salary cuts, and people ask them why. And they say, because I feel I need to invest in my country, okay? It's a kind of giving. Well, the kind of giving... Jesse also gave was letting his sons go off to battle. During those 40 days, those three sons were a drain on his assets, right? They were not helping his assets out. They were a drain, but he saw this, I have to give to my country, right? And that did pay off because uh, they won the battle and got a whole pile of plunder. And so, you know, it always pays to give because God gives back. But uh, anyway, point B. There, there were sacrifices of labor, time, and life. And in point B, verse 18, 10 cheeses okay, given to somebody who wasn't in the family, to the commander over the thousand. And from what I understand of those big cheeses, it was a fairly significant gift. And it sounds like this was kind of a regular investment that they were making. You could liken it to contributing to political campaigns. And I really encourage you guys, if you have spare money, to do stuff like that, to invest in your nation. And then in chapter 20, verse 29, we see the whole business being passed on to the children as dad retires, and we see an example of him spending money on the whole family on a new moon festival. 
Okay, this is one of the yearly uh, different festivals that they were engaged in. So good food and different things like that. God does not want us depriving ourselves of all comforts like Mr. Scrooge did, right? Uh, Even deferred gratification must be defined by God's Word, and God puts limits on that. He puts limits on deferring pleasure. He ordained 52 Sabbath days out of the year in which you spent money on good food and and wine, and and, and things that you could celebrate on. Then he had a monthly new moon festival, and then there was other festivals that you would go to. What that was is you're investing in your family, good things. You're, you're, You're bringing joy to them as well as to the poor if you can afford it. And so it's, it's the second tithe, basically. If you embrace the three tithes that we've talked about in the past, then your approach to capitalism is not going to be a miserly approach. It will be a joyful approach. Now, of course, Scripture speaks of many other kinds of giving. And the point of Max Weber was that strategic giving kept reformational capitalism from even remotely resembling the dog-eat-dog kind of world that Spencerian, totally libertarian, uh, capitalism brought. Spencer just adopted the views of, uh, of Darwin, the survival of the fittest. And he said, no, that's not even remotely like that. We give as stewards of God, and we must not give so much to people that we hurt them, make them dependent, but neither may we withhold when God calls us to be generous. Haggai 1 says that God isn't interested in blessing those who do not tithe and give beyond the tithe, and the people in Haggai complain. We can't tithe. We for sure can't give beyond the tithe to be building this temple because we don't have any money. And God says, oh, the reason you don't have any money is because you haven't been tithing. You've got it all backwards. Well, we don't have anything to tithe. And then he says, yes, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. And he immediately tells them, how do you break the cycle? Give. Give out of your poverty. That's exactly what he's commanding. Some of them said, we don't even have enough to eat well. He tells them, give anyway. You don't wait till you're a millionaire to tithe. Even the poor widow with one mite was giving from her substance. And when you do, God will bless them. Those who do not tithe cannot expect God to long bless them. Now, in this church, we have an offering plate in the back, so we don't even know who's um, giving, who's not giving, who's tithing, who's not tithing. But anybody who becomes a member commits themselves to giving 10% of their income uh, to the church. Now, that's between you and God. But let me tell you something. People have sometimes said... Wow, things have been so tight, we've been tempted not to give, but we've gone ahead and given anyway, thinking we're giving away what we don't even have. And they realize, no, God comes off the top. We don't have it if we don't give, you know. God comes off the top, and God has blessed them. He's opened up the windows of heaven. So let me give, give you Malachi's promises. Well, first of all, with his rebuke. He said, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So there are the curses for failing to be involved in the giving part of the Protestant work ethic. But then he goes on to say, test me. Test the word and see if I will not bless you when you start tithing. In fact, I think this promise sounds better than what the capitalists give as their their American dream. Okay? Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I think that's a great passage to conclude on because God has given to us the Protestant work ethic not to make us miserable, but to bless us, to make us happy. He didn't want us to be like Mr. Scrooge. In fact, Mr. Scrooge has completely missed out on the heart of of what the Protestant work ethic is all about. The Protestant work ethic was doing everything that we did to God's glory and enjoying Him. That's man's chief end. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I think God guarantees that if we glorify Him by working as hard as we can, saving as hard as we can, 
and giving as much as we can, He will cause us to enter into the enjoyment of those good things. And that's my prayer for you, that God would prosper you, enable you to enjoy life as you embrace the the Protestant Reformation's work ethic that really transformed Europe and laid the foundations for America. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And even when it brings rebukes, we know the rebukes are designed because you love us and you want our joy and our happiness. And I pray this joy and happiness into this your congregation as they seek to implement uh, the principles of the Reformation that were taught in the Protestant work ethic. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.